Hi, Guy Powell here, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Mark Rivera. He's a Shroud researcher and has a very interesting connection to the Shroud. So with that, let me introduce Mark. Mark is a retired physicist now living in rural Hawaii. His expertise is in optical physics, optimization using evolutionary and genetic algorithms, as well as in image processing. Mark's hobbies are sketching, digital and AI art, swimming, and playing the ukulele. Mark became interested in the Turin Shroud about 10 years ago when he saw a program on it produced by the History Channel. Since then, he has dabbled in attempts to reconstruct the face on the Shroud using a combination of image processing and digital art techniques. He has written a paper describing his latest attempt at reconstructing the face on the Shroud. Mark, welcome and glad to have you. Thank you. Welcome. Glad, Absolutely. Glad yeah, I'm so show. glad you're here. I'm very interested in uh, talking about some of the imaging things that you've done and and uh, showing some of the folks as well what you've done. So, but before you uh, do, before we do that, tell us uh, your backstory a little bit more on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. Well, like I said, I I originally saw a program on TV by the History Channel, where I think it was called the the Real Face of Jesus or something like that. And um, I think it was probably, I had heard of the shroud before that, but I was just kind of like, well, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but when I saw that show, I really became interested. Um, and then, of course, um, in the program, they had a fellow on, I can't remember his name now, but he attempted to use some three-dimensional digital techniques to reconstruct the face. And um, I thought to myself, well, being an image processing expert, uh, let wonder what I can do with it. Um, so I played around for a number of years, just on and off, but the images I had of the shroud, I had just pulled down from the web. So they weren't really high quality images. And finally, not too long ago, maybe about, um, oh, three or four months ago, I finally contacted Barry Schwartz, explained to him what I wanted to do. And uh, I needed a high quality um, scientific image and he was generous enough to send it to me which he did and i spent a month or two you know analyzing that image and finally came out with a result which which i have written in a paper describing the whole process um but of course there's still much more to do and much more that i can imagine doing so it's kind of a first my first cut with a professional photograph of the shroud yeah yeah uh, absolutely and um and i've and we're going to be showing a couple of those images here so uh so what kind of was that process what were some of the uh the key uh uh steps that you took to go from the image that barry sent you uh to the uh, final image that that we'll we'll show here in a little bit yeah the the process is what's known as hypothesis testing 
And the way to think of it is um, you want to, if, if I have a picture of say an airplane flying off in the distance, um, but there's noise and clouds and other things that kind of get in the way. If I can create a three-dimensional model of that airplane flying in the air and model the propagation of light through the atmosphere, I can produce a simulation of the actual physical situation. Once I have a simulation of that physical situation, I can model a camera looking at that situation. And what you do is you then compare your model picture based on the model, three-dimensional model you've constructed, the actual photograph. And you do this comparison. How you do that comparison is you subtract the model image from the real image. And what should be left is artifacts of reality, <laughs> which would be noise sources and things like that. So what I've done is not quite as advanced as that, but something along those lines where I created a, a model image of a face and continued to refine that model uh, by subtracting it from the actual data, the actual image. And the image that's left over should be uh, just artifacts of the cloth. And so I basically did this by an, a very long iterative process of constructing the model, doing a subtraction, analyzing what was left, deciding what belonged to the cloth, what belonged to the image, and transferring those artifacts from either the, the residual or the image model. And I kept that iterative process going until I was satisfied that I had all the major pieces of the face on one image with all the artifacts of the cloth on another image. So do you have to uh, try and explain what those artifacts are? So one of the things I've seen on the shroud is that the thread every half inch or three quarters of an inch kind of has a slightly different color. And it looks yeah. like that might be from the, the cloth weaving process. So would that be something that you might remove? Yes, that would be something I would remove. So when when I create the model, the model doesn't have these variate these natural variations in cloth. Um, so when you do the subtraction, what's left is just the variations in the cloth. So things like folds in the cloth, lead stains, these variations in color, they're left behind. Mm. Yeah, you know it's it's uh, it's so funny uh, and. Um, one of the, one of the, the software packages that, that we use, uh, in our business is a simulation package and it sounds exactly like that. So you adjust all these parameters to develop a simulation of reality, and then you compare that simulation to reality, and then you adjust the parameters a little bit further to get the error down to, uh, to, to a smaller difference. So it's, it sounds like it's a process like that. It is a pro it's it's very similar to a process like that and and something people might be familiar with um, if you see a graph of actual data and it's a curve of some sort but there's a lot of noise and static riding on that curve but you can kind of see well there's kind of a general shape going on here well a lot of times scientists will say 
well, in a, in a perfect world, that would be a nice curve that's an exponential shape or, or a hyperbolic shape. Some, they would assign some shape to it based upon the process that they know is happening. So they'll create a model that conforms to that shape and they'll subtract that model from the image, the actual data. And what's left is ideally just random noise. Mm. So it's, it's a very similar concept. You have a model, you have the data, you refine your model until what's left when you subtract it is just raw noise, either noise or artifacts that you know are there mm. and you don't, want, you don't want to transfer to your model. Yeah, so um, interesting because uh, uh, so what that means then is something like blood, which you you can recognize maybe on the cloth. So there's the E on the forehead so that you know what it is. And then it's so funny that you're you're doing that because that's exactly what this software does is that you're trying to get those errors down to be as random as possible. And right. um, and minus then, of course, the errors that might be there due to these known artifacts known and artifacts. Uh, what have you. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's the, fascinating. Yeah, the random the random noise, which I would call the snow or the static, like you know, if you look look at an old TV set and and you tune it slightly off the frequency, you just get this the snow and the static, and uh, that noise because it's random is relatively easy to identify Mm. uh, as noise. What's more difficult to identify is what they call correlated noise, which is these amorphous blobs or shapes or patterns that might show up. That's, that's more difficult to remove because you, you're not completely certain of what form these patterns. Like we were talking earlier about, what looks to be a furrow that runs from the nostril to the corner of the mouth. Uh, And the idea is, is that a pattern that's on the cloth or is it an actual furrow in the skin? And that's where judgment has to come in based on a model. So if your model has furrows, (laughs) then you Mm. would include the furrows in your model and that becomes part of the model. If you decide that's not a furrow and it's it's a water stain on the cloth, then you remove it and put it into the the non <laughs> the residual image. Mm. And so that that process of eliminating some of these patterns can can is a little more tricky than just the random noise because the noise the random noise is just static and snow. And that's easy to identify. Yeah, understood. And uh, it's it's funny that you're, uh, you know, you talk about that pharaoh and there's a couple of other markings on the face. And um, uh, Paul Vignon in the 1930s, he did some interesting studies on that. And, and one of the things that also came up was, you know, with the direction of the light and how the light might be hitting the painting or the mosaic of, of Jesus's face. And... Um, now, in our case, uh, or in the shroud, in the man in the shrouds case, uh, are you assuming though that the light is? Um, I think the, the term is vertically collimated. Are you assuming that, or, or? You, you mean the formation of the image? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but I guess I don't know the physical process that formed the image, but the assumption I made was that the intensity of the image on the cloth is proportional to the distance between the surface of the face and wherever the cloth was. So for instance, you know, if you imagine a cloth just laying prone on someone's face, you'd expect the cloth to touch the tip of the mm. nose, maybe the brows, uh, and like you were mentioning uh, or brought up before, the hair. So the cloth will drape. And the, the intensity you see in the image, we presume, or most some people presume, is that purport that is proportional to that distance. And that's what gives the three-dimensional information that's contained in the shroud. So I made no attempt, at least in the paper, I've been making some attempts to, to correct for the the uh, drape, the drapiness mm. of the, I don't know how else to put it. Um, it's like the shroud, the cloth was not a flat plate, like a photographic plate where the image is projected onto this flat plate. You have this curved surface in which the image was projected on. And um, we can guess how that curved surface might have looked to some degree and then subtract that the, um, the effect that that would have. And yeah, so, I was like, wondering about, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, one of the things you point out was that the hair looks very prominent in terms of its intensity relative to the rest of the face. And I presume that's because the cloth, as it was draped over the face, was lying close to the hair or even on top of the hair. And therefore, it looks as though the hair is more extended forward than it actually was because the cloth that picked up the signal was draped across. So the image you see is not a true elevation map of the face, uh, but making some presumptions about how the cloth was laying, you could start to correct for some of those, those errors. Yeah, yeah. And I would imagine that actually, and I think you mentioned it, it would be very difficult to actually understand exactly how that the shape of that draping is uh, not only in in two dimensions, but then in three as it yep. as it you know as it hits your nose and then drapes over your the mustache or over his mustache and right. then to the bottom lip and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things I did um, sort of has a a first guess was um, I. I identified points that a cloth might touch, you know, like maybe the brows, the nose, um, the chin, and and decided, okay, if this if these are places where the cloth touches, and in between these places it just sort of drapes slightly. I actually created a model where, you know, five or six points are holding this cloth mm. in place, and the rest of it is just kind of sagging slightly. And obviously it's just a complete guess, but when you take that, if you take that presumption as how the cloth is laying, which it probably wasn't, you, you get a image that looks better in terms mm. of what would be an actual elevation of the face. Um, so you can, you can make it look better than it does and probably a little more accurate, but obviously in terms of exactly how the cloth was draped, you know, you, you don't really know. Yeah. And, and one problem too, that I've always uh, struggled with 
uh, when you talk about the cloth draping over the face or over the rest of the body, one of the things that amazes me is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there doesn't seem to be any folds in the cloth. So the image is uh, as if it's as if the cloth is uh, is almost perfectly laid over the the top and the bottom because there's no folds either on the bottom, and that's and it either means and most likely this is the case that when Jesus was buried, that there was enormously great care taken to make sure that the the burial with that cloth was was really perfectly laid out right. and uh and that that uh that's i don't know how they could have done that but uh you know they certainly yeah. uh, must have done that it's almost like i imagine like you know if you're if you're lying in bed and you pull the covers over you but you just kind of smooth it out and let it just mm. step on you you would you if you're standing there you would see an outline of a body fairly clearly because like you said there's no folds or discontinuities in it so and i was also struck by the appearance of the image too that in the sense that i can't see any artifacts of what would be caused by a fold um it seemed to be draped nice and smooth so it could be possible that you know kind of in a in, in a sense of reverence they kind of you know draped it over over his body in a delicate fashion <laughs> yeah exactly and then um and then it gets even worse and i don't know we're maybe going off in a tangent here but uh yeah. supposedly then there was a strip of linen that wrapped the body uh from you know foot to uh, up to the neck and and what have you and there's no folds from that strip either that at least that I can see. Yeah. And I, and I, of course, the only thing I can guess is that may have been traditionally what was done wrapping the body with a strip or, you know, so that everything's kind of bound tight, like a mummy uh, in a sense, not quite like a mummy, but you know, it's all pulled in. Um, you know, I don't know how traditional they got with his burial and how often that was done or not done so it would it would seem certainly that if they had wrapped it like that you would you would see evidence of a lot of folding in the material but i don't see it yeah yeah me neither and um which I, and sorry now we're getting way off from the image so let me <laughs> i i could i could talk to you about that for hours yeah there's but... lots of tangents going with this topic yeah that, that a is a lot of speculation and kind of informed guesswork i'd say right yeah. right exactly exactly now um uh yeah so we talked about the hair and it makes sense what you talked about in terms of how the cloth is going to be draped over the hair and therefore, it may be artificially more pronounced than it actually was. And um, and what I also find interesting is that there's no ears or the ears are hidden by the hair. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, the only thing I could think of is obviously the image fades as you move towards the edges. And if there was indeed a formation caused by some collimated light that went straight up, and it would make sense that if this cloth was just sort of loosely draped, that the ears would sort of be hidden uh, because 
the light the light doesn't doesn't mm. just capture much of the ear or just an edge of it and that in combination with who knows the way the hair might have been draped or um uh you know i'm sure the body was was dirty and full of other things there could have been anything that might have blocked imaging of the ears so that that's yeah the only yeah, thing i can surprise yeah. about the the lack of the appearance of any ears yeah exactly and um but it, but uh image of the hair and you know i always get i don't know i was a big star trek fan and and uh um you know when they were beaming up the the guys from you know from from the the surface of the planet below how did the transporter beam know to take the hair uh the ears and then the hair but not maybe something that was right next to it and even <laughs> worse how did it know not to take like something from under the feet you know because the you know where where how did it know you know and yeah, then a we're... similar question, you know, how did, I, I mean, obviously it's a God's miracle. So, uh, you know, that explains it, but, um, you know, how, how did that method know, you know, to take the body, but not then the cloth, which was right next to it, you know, how did it, how did it know that? So, yeah, you're right. It, yeah. You just, I wouldn't know myself. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I just yeah. imagine it. If the body was, it's, if the source of the light came from the body itself and the molecules or material aspects of the body, then just the body image would, would appear, you know, and nothing mm. else. Um, so, you know, we, again, we can only sort of, you know, have some informed guesses about it. Yeah. So, um, well, how about if I uh, show some of the images and sure. then if you want to, we can talk through them. So let me share some of my screen. There we go. And I want to show you that. And um, how's that? Can you see that? Yep, I can see that fine. All right. Well, uh, so this is maybe a picture, pictorial way to describe what your process was. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, so on, on the far left, you see the a picture of the shroud, the, the portion of the face, obviously. And what you see in the middle there is actually the model image of just the imaged part, the body image part. And that model was constructed by um, analyzing the image you see on the far right, which is an attempt to produce an, an imageless cloth or a cloth without an image on it. And uh, so, Ideally, what I should see in that far right image is just artifacts of the cloth. So if I examine that image in detail, I don't want to see anything that I can't attribute to the cloth. And um, if I do that, then I can be assured that my model in the middle, the middle image, which is hard to see because the intensity of the facial images is very low when it's in the negative. So it's hard to see, but um, I think y'all, I we can show an image of that that's been enhanced so that you mm -hmm. can see them. Um, so that's basically trying to illustrate you've got the actual image on the far left, the model on the right. When you subtract those images, you should ideally get 
on the image on the far right, an imageless cloth where every pattern shape that you see on that side should be attributable to blood stains, water stains, anything but the image itself. Mm. So you can see over here, uh, that's the, uh, the E-shaped uh, uh, of the blood. And then it looks like you have then the the artifacts of the weave of the cloth. So you have this this line here, this slightly darker line, and yes. then this horizontal line as well yep. uh, that seems to be going through there. And then yeah. uh, you have then different artifacts of blood in the hair and and things like that. Yeah, and some some water stains and and the mm. banding that the banding that's caused by um, um, you know. E like the water stain there at the top or just the natural color variations in the cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, now what I like to point out is there could be artifacts of the face still contained to that image, but they're so small, either spatially or small in terms of visibility that you can't really see. So it's possible that I've left behind some fine details of the face that remain as part of my imageless uh, cloth, simply because it's it's difficult to see. Mm. Yeah. So, um, can I do the big reveal then of the uh, of the result? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Yeah. Now. What you see in the middle there, that darker image, that is the model image that I've enhanced so you can see it more clearly. Um, the actual intensity of that image is way low, simply because the, the intensity of the actual image in the cloth is very low. So I've enhanced it so you can see it. So that's the model. And then from that model, I start to take what I call artistic license in terms of doing two things um getting getting symmetry back into the face um because it's been distorted from facial trauma there's bruising and whatnot so uh correcting for that uh using some symmetry techniques um but then um also um starting to add some color like where you know the skin's obviously going to be this color the hair might be black or gray, the lips are more pink. So you, now you start to make some suppositions about uh, what to do to correct for what you see there in the middle. Yeah, and it's uh, very impressive. And just to uh, point out, I, I guess, a couple of things off the, the raw produced image. And, uh, you know, you can kind of see how the nose looks like it was broken. So right Definitely. here, uh, it looks like it may be broken. And yes. as I mentioned, this book from uh, Paul Vignon, he, you know, he points that, that out. He points this ridge out. He points these, these front, these brows or frontal arches here. Yep. And then you have these two bruises uh, on the one cheek and then the furrows uh, as well underneath each of the cheeks. And then right. I guess because this bruise is here, this, this pharaoh is pretty, pretty strongly indicated. Right. Yes, it is. 
Um, yeah. And, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was, uh, yeah, if you, if you don't mind. So then there's also uh, one of the things that all, that happened or that's been hypothesized is that as the body was brought down from the cross, it had to have been turned uh, over on its face, over on its back, over on its side. And uh, it's possible that this right here is actually a, uh, a blood that is coming out of the lungs through the mouth and then, you know, and, and then comes down through here. Right. And then lastly, you can see this notch out of the beard, which is slightly offset. And it's, it's probable that when he was being beaten by the Roman guards, possibly by the temple guards, uh, that they grabbed his beard and just ripped a chunk of his beard out. Yes, that, I think that's quite possible. I know that, um, I don't know, I've just seen movies of first century, you know, Palestine where um, the, uh, the leaders of the Jewish um, community you know they they grew long beards and uh, if someone blasphemed me they they'd grab some of their beard and pull it out you know in in frustration i suppose but um so it seems as though i'm not i'm not a historian that it was it was a common mm. way to express uh dissatisfaction with, to pull some of your beard out yeah, interesting. I hadn't heard that, but that makes a lot of sense because if you were, uh, and I don't remember if there's a different sect, you know, from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes, but if you shaved your beard, then that would also be a, um, you know, that was against the law, I, I believe, and be interesting right. to hear whether that's true or not. The other yeah. thing that's that's interesting, there's been a lot of supposition or a hypothesis as to whether there were coins placed on the eyelids to keep the eyelids closed. And I'm wondering if looking at these two relatively bright spots over the eyes, whether those were actually coins there. And then I notice, uh, you know, in your more artistic rendering that it looks like maybe something else happened here that is uh, related to those. Yeah, and like I said, it, to me, it doesn't appear as though there's coins, but it very well could be. Um, Still, because you start the the deep the deep setness part of the eyes, um, the image gets very faint. Mm. Um, so it's hard to see what's going on in the deeper portions of the eyes or even the sides of the face, because, like I said, the the image fades dramatically in some of these areas. Um, so what you see protruding at where the eyelid would be, it's a little uncertain as to whether that protrusion is just the eyelid or if something's resting on top of the eyelid. Mm. It's just a little hard to interpret. And to me, it looks to be, if I, if I produce contours, so like in, in some of my image processing techniques, I could take that image and make contours where it will draw a line of, of identical intensity. Mm. What it does is it allows you to, to see the shape of things a little clearer. Like, for example, if I contour the nose, you see the contours definitely making this wiggle, that, that the bridge of the nose is not straight. 
Um, and in fact, I used the contouring to help me straighten that nose up. You know, mm. I was able to, to morph it into a straight line. And that's part of the process I did to go from the image you see in the middle to the image on the right. But I presumed when I was doing it, moving from middle to right, that there were no coins there. Mm. And, uh, and basically started to fill in some of the areas where the image is very faint. Yeah. Well, one of my problems with the coins as to whether they're there or not uh, goes back to kind of my Star Trek example. Um, how, oh. how does the process know where the edge of the eyelids are? Number <laughs> one. Number two, if this is a, let's say it's a, it is some kind of a, you know, a radiation or even a neutron theory, which Robert Rucker has, then did the coins uh, distort that right there on the image during the image making process? And right. so there, so it may be that there were actually coins on there, but they don't show up as full coins because of the, the whole image making process and things like that. And then potentially the last thing I was thinking about as well is if that cloth is draping over your face, then, uh, you know, was the cloth, it, it would seem like, um, you know, if, if your eyes are closed, that those coins would protrude up high enough that maybe they are that much closer to the cloth and therefore that much brighter because it really does look like there's there's something going on there right yeah the, all these all these are reasonable <laughs> yeah. explanations. yeah yeah uh and like i said it's um it's we just, and sometimes we just have to do some guesswork and uh, yeah well what we do too and i told you about this software is we do a sensitivity analysis so we would then uh, do one image with the coins. So for example, and then one without, and then, you. you know, then you could do a kind of a, you know, a check as to which one you think maybe is more, more lifelike. Yeah. I, if we ever do discover the actual phenomenological process that occurred, then you could, you could actually model that the physics of it, I would say, if mm. it's modeled, <laughs> right, the physics, right. it, or at least the, the physics of it that occurred in this world, maybe I'll put it that way, um, the response of the molecules um, to whatever was happening to them. Um, if you could somehow model that, if we had a better idea of what was actually going on, then you could probably, like you said, create a situation where coins are there and coins are not, produce these model images and say, okay, which model matches what we actually see? You know, well, it looks like the one without coins is more mm. plausible than the one with coins, you know, something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, yeah. who knows what the future will bring, but. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, and I, I wonder as much as I would like to know exactly what the, 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 you know, you called it the phenomenological process was, that you know, I I think a lot of the shroud authenticists would really like to uh, know that and figure that out. On the other yeah. hand, if it were truly a miraculous, then 
it's uh you know we might just be uh what is it waving or searching out rainbows searching for the end of the rainbow and right. uh, we'll never find it because it was was truly miraculous and Right. And, uh, you know, and so there's kind of like, well, we can get this close to how we think what happened, but then there's that a miracle happened here. <laughs> right. And, and, and I guess, yeah. yeah, as a as a physicist, I think to myself, well, e even during a miracle, um, the the physical molecules are responding to something, mm. you know, um, the hand of God or something. But at, at any rate, let's say. Um, the, the molecules emit some radiation for some reason. Well, then the molecules themselves would might lose energy, which would mean they would decay into a different molecular state. You know, so there's you could still sort of guess how the physical world would respond to something behind what's happening mm. that 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 you mm. can't model because maybe it's non-physical in some way. But the response of the physical to that uh, could be modeled to some degree. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I don't know, it's, this gets way back into my college days, but I remember I took this advanced uh, mathematics course, and I can't remember what it was called, but uh, what our goal or one of the things that came out of it was, how do you mathematically model an explosion of some kind? And what what you would do is you would say, well, I can't model the actual explosion because there's just too much going on. But if I step away from the explosion 10 feet or 100 feet, then all of a sudden there's something that I can actually, uh, you know, put into a mathematical model. So I can kind of have this mathematical model that goes up to a certain closeness to the explosion and then, you know, there's something beyond that, the math doesn't work, or I can't figure out the math to do it. Right. It, it's actually the same thing with, say, black holes. Yeah, um, yeah. As you move toward the middle center of a black hole, you know, the, basically the laws of physics, as we know them, start to break down. You get in this point that they call a singularity, where you can't really trust the model beyond a certain point, but at a certain distance from the black hole, we can kind of trust the models but as you go closer to the black hole it's like kind of all bets are off because you know your model starts to break down yeah exactly exactly well this is I, I to me this is phenomenal work it is just so impressive and so uh just awesome i mean it's just awe-inspiring oh, as to as to what you've done i really appreciate it and yeah and appreciate the time uh, spending uh, with us today. Do you have um, any other uh, thoughts or comments that you want to mention before we close up? I guess the only comment I would say is that this is kind of my first pass at doing this kind of thing with a high quality image. And I could think of other processes that I can do that would augment this process or maybe even do a better job which are much more involved processes, um, more detailed modeling and things like that. Um, so to me, I look at this as kind of a first blush or proof of concept maybe, um, that if we, if we can create physical three-dimensional models of what we think occurred, and then we produce an image in you know, cyberspace of what occurred, 
and then we compare that to our actual image. We can keep tweaking the model and guessing what we think happened or didn't happen until we're able to produce an image that matches very close to the one we see. Mm. And then we could be assured that our model is a model of what may have actually happened. And, and that to me is like the sort of the, the ultimate um, form of the process that I started here. Yeah, well, and it is a, a phenomenal start. Um, actually, one more uh, question or thought for you, and that is um, the cloth itself is a weave. And so you have, uh, you know, cloths going uh, or thread going up and down and up and down between the, you know, as, a, as the weave and the weft and the it goes across, uh, you know, horizontally and then vertically. Um, uh, would there be a way to kind of correct the image based on kind of flattening that out in some fashion and then do the, the analysis? Oh, absolutely. Um, the thing about we like patterns, like a weave, um, there's a mathematical technique that can measure the frequency and amplitude and phase of that weave. And once you have the frequency, amplitude, and phase of the weave, you can just subtract it out. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, there's there's definitely, you know, if, if you have a known process um, and you can model that known process, then you can duplicate it, produce an image of this process, and subtract it from the actual object or image of the object. And you've for the most part, essentially eliminated that artifact. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess, and in your modeling process, then that would be part of this random noise that you're trying, I guess, to get down to in some fashion. Right. Like yeah. I said, there's, there's a combination of random noise. There's a combination of patterns, uh, consistent patterns, and uh, just amorphous blobs from, from blood stains and water stains. Um, and all these forms of artifacts, forms of noise, I would call them, you want to try and get a handle on how they were produced, what they're composed of, and, and use that to say, this is an artifact, this is noise, and this is part of the face. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Because they, they are, they're obviously very different things. And if you can characterize them well enough, then you can extract one from the other. Right now, they're all kind of mushed together in one image. And the idea is to try and separate all that's going on into these, I think of it as different layers. You know, mm. you've got the weave layer, you've got the water stain layer, you've got these different layers. That's how I kind of picture it in my mind. And all mm. these layers are mushed together and you want to try to pull them apart. Hmm. Well, I, I learned a lot um, from what you did in terms of the, uh, you know, the bruising and then the mustache and the shape of the mustache and the beard and things. And so I think you've definitely moved the, the sciences forward with the shrouds. So congratulations on that. And, and I'm well, hoping that as you move forward generally with, you know, the next layers of levels of refinement, I think there's going to be some very 
eye-opening things that come out of that. So, uh, but with that, uh, we've got to kind of break. Uh, so, um, in any case, uh, thank you uh, so much. And um, and uh, now, what we'll do is, uh, I think you said you have your paper um, out on the web somewhere. And yes. what we'll do is we'll put that paper, a link to that paper in the show notes. So if anyone is interested in downloading that paper, they'll be able to do that and get that link. And um, and then otherwise, um, anything, any other last comments or? No, other than thanks for having me on and being interested enough to uh, showcase my work. It's been a pleasure and I, I hope people take a look at it and um, we can sort of collaborate on getting different experts together and unraveling the mystery <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh and there's unfortunately there's regardless of you know of how much work you do uh on the shroud what i found is that there's always 10 times more to do so yeah. even if you did you know another day's work there's still another 10 or 100 oh, yeah. days so yeah. it never gets smaller it just gets bigger it's big. Yes, it does. It doesn't. It? <laughs> yeah, it really does. Well, uh, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, very fascinating. And uh, definitely uh, for me and hopefully for the audience, uh, very educational okay. and informative and, and valuable. So uh, with that, uh, for the audience, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And otherwise, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more of these episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Mark, thank okay. you so much. Thank you so much, Guy. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you.